Well, I'd like to welcome you to King's. It's great to see you here. Really great. And uh, I'm picking up on the series, When the Spirit Comes. And it's fantastic to be having so many baptisms in the church, isn't it? And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking on water baptism, uh, which we have seen today. So it's uh, good to be able to teach into it. I want to ask a question up front. Um, How do you know a church is full of the Holy Spirit? Let me ask that question. How do you know a church is full of the Holy Spirit? Think about that for a moment. What, what, What do you look for? Well, these are some of the things I I look for and I would hope to find in a church full of the Holy Spirit. But just so you know where I'm going, I'm going to sort of go through a list of things which you would hope to see. But I don't think they're the deal in the end. They're not, for me, the thing I'm looking for. Okay? They're really important and I would hope they're parts of kings and they're definitely a part of a church that's full of the Holy Spirit. So one would be worship. Wouldn't you think that if you were in a church full of the Holy Spirit, you'd expect great worship? Uh, Things like the presence of God. I love corporate worship. I love singing songs. I love doing it with other believers. And you kind of feel like, sense the tangible presence of God. You You would want that in a church full of the Holy Spirit, yeah? Yeah, I would. I definitely would. In fact, what you're looking for, the if you remember that the Holy Spirit was originally in the Old Testament, just in a building. It was in the temple. That's where the presence of God is. When we gather as God's people now filled with the Holy Spirit, we are, in a sense, we become the people. We become the living stones. We become the temple. So even in our gathering, the gathered people is God's here with us and in us. Um, How about gifts of the Holy Spirit? Do you think that's a sign of a church full of the Holy Spirit? I think I I would think it is. It's, uh, so you would expect prophecy and tongues and encounter and a whole series of gifts. I would expect that. What about healings? Would you think healings is a sign of a church full of the Holy Spirit? I, I would. I would like us to see more healings. Um, uh, oh, what about fruits of the Spirit? So I, would, I think if you're in a church full of the Holy Spirit, you would, you would hope and expect that people are becoming more mature and therefore, they're more self-controlled. They've got more peace. They're kind. They're good. So you would expect the um, fruits of the Spirit. What about inner healing? Do you think uh, a church full of the Holy Spirit has inner healing? But By the way, can I just say inner healing is not in the Bible. Not a phrase that's used in the New Testament at all. So what's inner healing? Uh, well, let me give an interpretation of what inner healing is. Maybe it's emotional health. So, would, you know, people that are finding, uh, you know, where they've been sinned against or hurt, you'd want them to find some healing. I, I think we would want that for people, wouldn't we? Um, emotional health, resolution, and uh, when you've been sinned against. Uh, and you would hope a church full of the Holy Spirit would uh, have that characteristic about. But can I say, can I just note at this point is that all of the examples I've given all very valid examples of a church full of the Holy Spirit, all really directed to people who are Christians, already Christians. They are body things. It's worship, it's temple, it's gifts, it's healings, it's fruit of the Spirit. And these are all wonderful things, and I'm glad we have them. But I want to propose to you that uh, I wonder if there is an even greater sign of a church full of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you that actually if you look particularly through the lens of Luke's 
account of the New Testament church. Acts covers the first 30 years of the church. And those first few chapters show the outbreak of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. That when the Holy Spirit comes, the thing that really happens more than anything else is the gospel is proclaimed. And the greatest sign of a Holy Spirit-filled church is salvation. That people actually come from spiritual death to spiritual life. That is the sign. In fact, the work of the Holy Spirit should point people to Jesus. And any sign or wonder is uh, literally a signpost to the real message. The big message is that Jesus has come and there is salvation available. And when people get saved, what do they do? They get baptized in water. That's what happens. So a real sign of a church full of the Holy Spirit is lots of baptisms. Lots of baptisms. Now, I have been in situations where people have said that a sign of a church really full of the Holy Spirit is they've got tongues and interpretations and gifts, and no one is being saved. Yeah? I think, oh, gosh, okay. I've been in other contexts where people, there's no spiritual gifts or anything like that, and loads of people being saved. Which church is more full of the Holy Spirit? Well, if I had to choose which way I'd lean, I'd lead to the one that saw loads of people saved. Okay? Because actually the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and new birth is, it's like fundamental. It's, it's foundation and all. And as it happens in the New Testament, people get baptized in water. And please don't understand me. I, I, I want great worship and I want gifts and I want fruit and I want all that. But if you just have that, you become a holy huddle and you don't actually become a missional community which is what I believe God calls his people to be. Let's uh, see if what I'm saying is in the Bible, shall we? Uh, in fact, let's just go to the famous passage about the promise of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the context of the fulfillment of Joel's promise, uh, the very thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes, Peter gets up, he preaches the gospel, he doesn't make any reference to all the manifestations and prophecies, or, or the, that you will prophesy and things like that. He focuses his on Jesus and proclaims it, and 33,000 people respond and get baptized. This becomes what could be called the normal Christian birth of gospel proclamation, repentance, faith, baptism in spirit, and baptism in water. Now, if you're still with me, what I'm going to try and do now is give you a quick overview of the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts and sort of just through this lens, that Holy Spirit comes, gospel proclamation, people are baptized. So Acts 1 starts with a, an instruction to wait for the promise that you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and wait and the Holy Spirit will come on you to be a witness. So, so actually the promise is connected to gospel proclamation, your gospel proclamation, our gospel proclamation. Acts 2, as I said, Pentecost comes, Peter preaches the gospel, people get baptized, it says in verse 38, repent and be baptized. So 
if God's active in your life, if you're experiencing the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian here, then you probably, if the Holy Spirit's active in your life, you probably think, I better get baptized. Acts 3, there's a healing, a great healing. So what happens is the apostles are just going up to the temple, and this guy says, can you heal me? Or can you, actually, can you give me some silver and gold? And, and um, uh, the apostles say, look, I can't give you that, but in the name of Jesus, be healed. Now, this gets them in lots of trouble. And what do they do to the onlookers? What they do is they preach the gospel. So the sign, the healing preaches, leads to the preaching of the gospel. Acts 4, they're in trouble, these apostles, so they're dragged before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And they have to give an account. This is their account. Uh, They preach the gospel. It is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So the healing leads to gospel proclamation. Um, at the end of that, they, they kind of go back from the Sanhedrin and have a prayer meeting. This is a fantastic prayer meeting. The prayer meeting literally shakes, such is the power of the Holy Spirit. But the land point is that they would have courage or boldness to preach the gospel. Acts 5, they're put in jail because of their ongoing preaching the gospel. And they're uh, pulled in front of the Sanhedrin again. On this occasion, they stand out and say, the God of our ancestor, ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So they preach the gospel. At six, the church is growing so fast, so they have to kind of rework how they do the leadership of the church. What's the land point? So that the word of God can and, and did spread. Um, Acts 7 is the, the martyrdom of, 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 of Stephen. So the Holy Spirit comes on Stephen. What does he do? Well, he preaches this gospel, explaining through the Old Testament all the promises pointing to the Messiah. That is Jesus. He preaches the gospel. Acts 8. Are you with me so far? Are you getting the drift? Okay. Acts 8, what happens is Philip the evangelist, he, um, he, he, he's preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and this is what happens. He preaches the gospel. If you read the passage, he draws out of Isaiah. And the Ethiopian comes to faith and he says this. This is his response. Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? So once again, Holy Spirit comes. Gospel proclamation leads to water baptism. Acts 9. So you've got Saul who's persecuting the church. Saul Paul who... We know that probably many of us know the story, the Damascus Road story. He gets saved uh, then. And then because he's a Jew and he's had a religious experience, he immediately fasts for three days. What happens after he's fasted for three days, he gets up and he gets baptized. In fact, he gets baptized before he eats. Now, I've heard a load of reasons why people don't like getting baptized, but the fact that I'm, I'm hungry is not one of them. But anyway... But he gets up immediately. And then what about this? Acts 10. So here's an example of supernatural activity that leads to gospel proclamation that leads to response of baptism. So what happens? Acts 13 starts with a vision. It's like a prophetic picture dream of a sheet with animals on that comes to Peter. Uh, and in the context of the house of Cornelius. And so what does Peter do? Well, he says he interprets the prophetic that he should preach the gospel to God-fearers. And so he stands up and he preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon them, what happens? He says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? 
So when the Holy Spirit comes, do you know what happens? People get baptized in water. If we are truly full of the Holy Spirit as a church, we will see great worship and fruits of the Spirit and healings, and we want more of that. But, wow, the sign is gospel proclamation. People getting saved and people getting baptized in water. That's what I believe. I want it all, but I definitely want gospel proclamation and supernatural, spiritual, Holy Spirit activity, bringing new birth, taking people who are dead, who come to life, they're regenerated, they're born again, and it leads to a response of baptism in water. Now, if you're visiting here, you don't normally come to church, you're so welcome, but you're probably thinking, how is this guy's going on about something that was written 2,000 years ago and sort of summarizing the first few months and years of the church? How does that relate to me and my life now? Well, it does because the people that have stood before you and spoken in word and in deed are declaring publicly that this same Jesus is alive and is alive in their life. Um, as a church here, we run the Alpha Course. The Alpha Course is a course where people have the chance to discover and ask their questions about the Christian faith or the person Jesus. It's a fantastic course. And it was originated out of a great church based here in London, led by a guy called Nicky Gumbel. And uh, they just produced some great resource, a new Alpha movie. And I've got a fantastic clip for you. The clip starts with Nicky Gumbel uh, introducing our... Uh, uh, Francis Collins, who is a leading scientist, kind of world-renowned leading scientist. His expertise is in the area of genetics and kind of DNA, and this is his journey, his uh, story. So I wondered if we could uh, just roll that video now. One of the scientists of our time is director of the Human Genome Project, mapping the three billion letters in the human DNA considered by many to be the most significant scientific undertaking of our time. He describes how he encountered Jesus and came to believe in the truth of Christianity. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, My father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, When I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, She had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me 
and I had been silent. And she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible, uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician. That brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise resulted in my conversion. Just a fantastic testimony of a, a brilliant man coming on a journey of discovery and ultimately faith. And we would like to invite you on that journey. We'd like you to, we'd actually pose the question to you, have you really ever considered the big questions of life? And uh, we run the Alpha course here. It's running on this site on Wednesdays in the day and Thursday evenings. And we'd love to invite you along. Come along as a free meal and an opportunity for you to ask your questions and to find out whether Jesus is who he said he is. Uh, to the uh, uh, Jewish hearers of the gospel, Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. They, uh, Peter stands up, preaches uh, the gospel. To the Jewish uh, hearer minds, they were very quickly connects what had happened to them internally with external expression. So one commentator put it like this, the Jewish mind could not divorce inward spirituality from its outward expression. And so if something happened, if you encountered God, if you experienced the risen Lord Jesus in your life, if you had your sins forgiven, if you believed then you just got baptized. That's what happened in the New Testament because their kind of worldview was that what happened inwardly had to be expressed outwardly. 
And so probably in Acts, in Acts 2, they're literally, Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches the gospel, and they go down, and there's big pools in around the temple. And they probably jumped in, just like I might jump in Trafalgar Square if Palace beat Man United in the FA Cup final in a, a little while's time. So if you see me on Facebook in Trafalgar Square, it's, you know, just be gracious uh, toward me. They would quickly move to water. The commentator went on to say, they continue to practice water baptism as the external symbol by which those who believe the gospel repented of their sin and acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and publicly bore witness to their new life. It's a bit like when people get married. Have you ever been to a wedding? You turn up and everyone's dressed up and there's a guy and a girl and they're all, oh, this is there's a moment they're looking into each other's eyes and you go through a legal and an external commitment for better for worse uh, and till death is part but really what's happening is this is just an external uh, a ceremony that is connected what's happened in their heart that they've found love they've found a person to be with and so actually the ceremony, the, 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 the symbolism, the external is really connected to what's happened internally in their lives. And that is what baptism, water baptism is for the believer. It is that if you have, um, it's like, it's, in that sense, as a believer, it's like getting married. It's like, okay, I'll become a Christian. There's, I need to have a way of symbolizing what God has done internally in my life. And that is what water baptism is. That's why when I became a Christian, it was just, I was probably more Jewish in my thinking than I realized because I had spent six to nine months investigating the Christian faith. As you would know, if you've been in this church for any length of time, I got saved while someone was preaching, got up, walked across the room at the end of the meeting, spoke to my pastor and said, I want to get baptized. I didn't even say I'd become a Christian. Such was my understanding of even then of what the New Testament teaches when it comes to baptism. And for some of you, and we know this because you were good enough to fill in the church survey, we were surprised by the number of you that are not baptized. It was all kind of, oh, okay. Quite a few people seeking God, quite a few people saved but not baptized. And we think, oh gosh, this is a really important step, which is why we're teaching on it. And uh, maybe today your next step is even to investigate water baptism. And therefore, I'd like to invite you to attend next Sunday's at the 11.30 meeting, the baptize, uh, baptism inquiry session or class. And we have literature here and we just explain what the scriptures teach. And there's also one next uh, Sunday evening at 5.30 if you can't be around in the morning. Why should you be baptized? This is booklet summarizes that. But uh, we summarize in here and let me just introduce you to it. It's because Jesus commanded baptism. Jesus himself was baptized, and the apostles taught and practiced it in the New Testament, as I have shown you earlier in this message. What does baptism mean? Well, it's a symbol, and it's, it's an external picture of what's happened in your heart. You have, uh, through new birth, been united. You have union with Christ, and the baptism of Paul symbolizes what's happened, that you have been buried, you've buried your old life, you've died to your old life, you are literally put under the water, it's like a grave, you go under 
and uh, you, it's connected with you uh, uh, recognizing the death of Jesus, and then as you come up, it's symbolizing that there's new life, there's resurrection. It's symbolizing the cleansing of your sin. So it's like the washing of your sin away. It's an opportunity to encounter God. I actually remember the date of my baptism. I don't remember the date I got saved. I actually remember 6th of Feb 1983 was the day I got baptized. It is a landmark moment in my walk with God. It signifies you're joining to the body of Christ, to the church. So when you get saved, you get connected to God. But when you get baptized, you're also, it's a way you symbolize that you're connected to other people. That you're actually not a lone runner. You're a part of a family. You're a part of God's family. And lastly, it's a public declaration of your faith. When the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel is preached, people repent and become Christians, and they get baptized in water. A spirit-filled church has lots of water baptisms. Let me uh, come at it another angle. The Apostle Paul preaching, as recorded in Acts 22, is one of my favorite verses. Because it's so difficult to interpret, it needs a really gifted teacher to open the verse up for you. So Acts 22 says in verse uh, 16, And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now that's a difficult passage to grapple with, isn't it? Yeah, Just think about it for a moment. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized. And wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, there are many reasons I've heard for people not getting baptized. I mean, they're they're like hurdles. So sometimes it's fear. I don't want to stand in front of all those people. I don't want to give testimony. I don't want to have to speak out. That's it. It's a fear issue. Now, look, uh, uh, if you want to give testimony publicly and speak, you're free to do that. We don't expect everyone to do that. We don't want that to be the hurdle. What we do want is, if you're a believer, is to get into the water, okay? So if you just want to be like we have on a number through today, just get baptized. Uh, you just need to declare Jesus is Lord. Then that's fine. Uh, I've heard reasons like, I don't like to get my hair wet. I've heard that, you know, I don't want to get hair wet. Uh, I, mean, I, I just come back from our, our lease site, and someone got baptized there, and they had a swimming cap on, okay? So you can even get baptized in this church and keep your hair looking good, okay? <laughs> Some people don't get baptized because of past teaching. They've grown up in an Anglican church that taught christening. We teach water after faith. Water comes after birth, new birth. Um, or you come from a Salvation Army background that doesn't... Uh, practice the sacraments of water baptism and, or breaking bread. So you've had past teachings. So hopefully this, this teaching is sort of opening your eyes that this was, normal, this was normal church Christian behavior to get baptized in water. Another one I've heard is that I don't know what my mum and dad would think. I don't get baptized. This is like going public. It's, it, well, it is. It's actually saying I'm a Christian uh, and Jesus is my Lord. And Particularly if parents come from a different church tradition that doesn't, I mean, it's just. But these ultimately are not reasons not to get baptized. Because if we want to be a part of a uh, church full of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit actually ultimately will reveal this to be truth. 
that, that, that no, this is true. And um, in a sense, my job is to present truth as I understand it to you. And your job is to respond to God, not to me, to God. Is God speaking you to you today? I think for some of you, he's speaking to you again. The Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to you. And it's your moment to put your trust in him and become a Christian for the first time. For others of you, you are Christians. But for some reason, there's just a little bit of inertia over this one about getting baptized in water. But you know that you know that God is speaking to you. That it's your moment and time to make that step uh, and uh, follow him.